to think in terms of not playing small is to recognize that this is not all about you, right? That there are consequences and costs to other people when we hold out and hold back or when we burn out from overworking, over-preparing. And so it's to recognize that we all have gifts and talents and, and to, to hold back on those is to, you know, there's a, a consequence for people that really kind of goes, goes beyond us. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin. And today we have with us Valerie Young, an internationally known expert on imposter syndrome and author of the award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. Valerie, thank you for joining us today. I'm really excited to be here, Sahil. Let's start with the basics. What is imposter syndrome? Uh, actually, the, the more accurate term is the imposter phenomenon. Everybody calls it imposter syndrome. Uh, but the imposter phenomenon was a coined term in 1978 by two psychologists, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And basically what they found is that despite evidence to the contrary, and often overwhelming, compelling evidence of you know abilities and accomplishments, a lot of people deep down feel like they're really not as bright, capable, competent, qualified, talented as people think they are. And they, you know, kind of chalk their success up to things like luck, timing, computer error. They just like me, connections, those kind of things. So they they explain away their successes uh, and have a hard time owning their accomplishments. And the end result is this fear of being exposed or found out. And is there a difference between self-esteem and the imposter phenomenon? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they're not the same, you know. Think of think of self-esteem as a kind of global sense we have about ourselves. But imposter syndrome is very specific to achievement arenas, work, school, business, career. You don't feel like an imposter when you're walking the dog or emptying the dishwasher, but you might in a meeting or on a podcast interview or when you're you know, getting constructive criticism at work or, or you get a big promotion. So some studies have connected the two. Other studies find no strong connection. So in other words, it's possible to have healthy self-esteem and still have imposter syndrome. Hmm. And then what kind of behaviors does it manifest itself in? Yeah, that's, a, that's another really great question, because most people focus on the feeling part, uh, but it's not just an interesting self-help topic. And the reason is because there are behaviors associated with imposter syndrome. When you feel like an imposter, you have to find a way to both manage the anxiety of waiting for the other shoe to drop and to avoid being found out. So we do, we have different coping and protecting mechanisms like um, flying under the radar. So that's the person who doesn't step up, doesn't raise their hand, ask questions, go for more challenging opportunities. They don't start or grow their business, for example. Uh, on the other end of that continuum is people who overwork, overprepare on everything that they do. But, but deep down, they feel like it's only because they have to work harder than other people. Uh, Chronic procrastination is another one. Um, um, never starting or finishing, you know, because if you don't finish the degree or the paper or the business plan or the book or the painting, no one can judge you. No one will find out. Or different forms of self sabotage. It could be showing up late to an important business meeting or a client meeting or uh, interview, or it could be uh, job popping. Uh, could be changing your major constantly at, at university or uh, alcohol or substance abuse. So it can manifest itself in lots of different ways. One of the things you say is if you want to stop feeling like an imposter, you have to stop thinking like an imposter. What do you, what have you found effective in doing that? Uh, you talk about reframing and then are there other tips that have been successful? 
Yeah, well, the, the first step is to understand that, you know, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter. But the reality is feelings are the last to change. And the only difference between people who feel like imposters and people who don't, because they're really no more intelligent, capable, competent than the rest of us, is just in the exact same situation where, you know, we might feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. So people who don't feel like imposters, and I'm not talking about narcissistic, you know, smartest guy in the room kind of person, but people who are genuinely humble, but have said, you know, I've just never had these feelings. They think differently about three things, competence and what it means to be competent. They think and, and respond differently to failure, mistakes and criticism. And they look at fear differently than people who feel like imposters. So it's a matter of when you're having what I consider a normal imposter moment, kind of hitting the pause button and then stepping back and you know become consciously aware of that conversation going on in your head. And then say, how is somebody who doesn't feel like an imposter, how would they think differently about what's happening right now. And so it's a process of kind of learning to reframe so we can learn to think like them. One of the things you also say is that they react differently to, let's say, constructive criticism. Uh, is that also something you see as non-imposter syndrome thinking in a way? Absolutely. I mean, let me be clear. Nobody, you know, necessarily wants constructive criticism, although that said, right, there are people who spend exorbitant amount of money for executive coaches and people to give them, just tell them where their blind spots are you know, and to give them the information that they need to get better. But people who feel like imposters, we tend to be kind of wounded by even constructive criticism, right? We let it mean more about who we are as a person. So if somebody says that report was inadequate, what we hear is, I am inadequate. <laughs> right. It's interesting. One of the things that we see happening is that sometimes incompetent people think they're competent. Yes. And then competent people feel like they're incompetent. Absolutely. And you say that one of the things that imposter shares an unreal, unrealistic, distorted definition of competence. Yes. Well, yeah. And so I'm wondering, how do we create this better sense of self-awareness within ourselves and others? Well, I think it's a matter of understanding that there is another way to look at competence. You know, for example, people who feel like imposters, and there's no one way to look at it, right? So for somebody who is kind of the perfectionist, competence to them means getting it right 100% of the time, you know, flawless, perfect performance every time. So they might do a podcast, for example, and the podcast ends and they, they realize they forgot to make some minor point or they stumbled over their words and they would beat themselves up, you know, endlessly. Then there's the person I call the expert. It doesn't mean they are an expert. What it means is that they're defining competence based on how much they know. You know, so it's not so much about the quality of their work, like with the perfectionist, although that's still important, but for them, it's the quantity of knowledge and information that they know. And they feel like they never know enough. So there's always one more book to read, one more class to take, one more degree to get. Then there's the natural genius. That's the person who defines competence based on ease and speed. They expect to hit the ground running, pick things up immediately overnight. And if they have to struggle to understand something or master something, they're very hard on themselves. Uh, the soloist, which as it sounds, they think I have to do it all by myself or it doesn't count. And asking for help or advice would, would, be, would indicate I must not really know what I'm doing. And of course the superwoman, superman or super student who, who expects themselves to excel in multiple roles in their life, not just in work or career or school, but also as a, a parent, a partner, a family member, community member, and so on, and look good all at the same time. But, but in all of those, there's this expectation that is just not realistic and not sustainable. So for all of those types, it's a matter of realizing that there is another 
another way to, to look at it, you know, like, guess what? You're never going to know anything in the beginning when you start something or, or ever, right? It's the equivalent of trying to get to the end of the internet, mm. you know, to, to realize that the wisest people in leadership and, and, and any field, they ask for help. They seek out help. They don't think they're the smartest guy in the room. They surround themselves with people who are smarter than they are, quote unquote. I hate using that word smart, but but uh, you know, the perfectionist, it's a matter of helping them realize you can still have high standards, right? The good news is they care deeply about the quality of their work, but there's a difference between perfectionism where there's a lot of shame involved when you fall short and a healthy drive to excel. Do you see a common relationship between people kind of beating themselves up and then imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. There was a study, I wanna say out of the University of Austria that found a connection between uh, self-compassion and imposter syndrome that people who spoke to themselves in a more compassionate way were less, had less experience with imposter syndrome. People who did not have high self-compassion, who were always like, oh, you're so stupid, you know, beating themselves up in that way, were more likely to feel like imposters, mm. which, which there's a good reframe. Can I just mention it right, right yeah. there? There's a good reframe. Like when you, people <laughs> say, you know, I'm so stupid, right? You walk out of a meeting, you go, oh, I'm so stupid. If you could just say to yourself, I felt so stupid. I mean, we all feel stupid, right? If, if you don't feel stupid in the next 24, 48 hours, I'm scared for you <laughs> because that means you're not learning anything. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things uh, I think I saw once was if you don't feel embarrassed by how much you've grown in a year or two, then you haven't really grown that much, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What, what are your perspectives on focusing on your strengths and weaknesses? Some say that you should be aware of your weaknesses but then really focus on your strengths. Yeah, I mean, that seems logical to me. You know, I think that when you feel like an imposter, you, you tend to focus primarily on your weaknesses. Uh, and, and, you know, again, we're very hard on ourselves for even very human faults. I mean, I look at it like, you know, I'm really good at like two or three things. I'm okay at a four or five other things and I suck at everything else. And I'm good with that. <laughs> Right. So I think there's wisdom. What is it? Clint Eastwood said a man's got to know his limitations. Right. And, and so do we. We're not going to excel at everything. And that's OK. One of the things you often say is that you may feel like a fraud, but in truth, your fear of being inadequate pales in comparison to your fear of being extraordinary. Yeah. What advice would you give to people about how to play, how to stop playing small? I think that that is a great question because it, to think in terms of not playing small is to recognize that this is not all about you, right? That there are consequences and costs to other people when we hold out and hold back or when we burn out from overworking, over-preparing. And so it's to recognize that we all have gifts and talents and, and to, to hold back on those is to, you know, there's a, a consequence for people that really kind of goes, goes beyond us. And, and when I first kind of realized this, uh, Sahil, I was in graduate school. I was procrastinating on finishing my dissertation. I had 600 pages of interview notes that I now had to make sense of and create a model around. Uh, and this friend of mine wrote me a letter and said, Valerie, you have to finish because you're learning things that could help a lot of people. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like people are waiting for me, right? How selfish am I? And I found it very motivating to connect my um, behavior and my, you know, my, my results to, to other people and the impact on them. And it's actually been found to be true in, in business that when people do that, when they can connect their behavior to a benefit to somebody on their team, for example, that, that it moves them past their own fear. Yeah, I wanna shift uh, our conversation to careers. You've done a lot of work on thinking outside the job box. 
Yes. And I believe in 1995, you founded Changing Course. I did. It was an online resource for people who want to make a living doing what they love without a job. Right. Well, 95, it started out as a hard copy newsletter because the, the World Wide Web wasn't quite there yet. Uh, but I went online in 1998. But yeah, I started in 95. This is really interesting to me because I feel like a lot of us really want to work on what our passions are and not, yep. you know, not really focus on a typical nine to five day job. Right. What have you found effective in how making that shift? You know, I think the, 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 the first step is to not so much think about the work but to think about what do you want your life to look like first, like start there uh, and figure out what, you know, what time do you want to get up in at You know, it, I used to always say, what time do you want to get up in the morning until a client said, you know, does it have to be the morning, <laughs> but what time do you want to get up? Do you want to work with your hands, your heart, your body? Do you want to work with other people? Do you want to work, um, you know, in a home office at a cafe in Paris on, on a boat outside? And so once you can kind of figure out what you want your life to look like, then you can come up with ways to generate income that's going to allow you to have as much of that life as possible. And you know what? It might not be your passion because your passion might be that you want to live by the ocean and you'll do any work. You don't care what the work is because you want to get out of your corporate rut and live by the ocean. So sometimes I think the work can be a means to an end if it allows you to have the life that you, you want. And I think the passion part hangs up a lot of people because they find their passion like, oh my God, I figured out what I want to do. I love this. And they, they get all busy and they start putting it in place. And then they run into something hard. And they're like, oh, this sucks. Well, this must not be my passion because they think it's supposed to feel like play. <laughs> like when you find your passion, it feels like play every right. day. No, <laughs> sometimes it feels like work. And then they go off in search of the next passion. Uh, and because so sooner or later, it's going to feel like work. Right. I think one of the things Steve Jobs said, which I found really interesting, was that the reason why you want to kind of follow your passion is that when you run across something difficult, you won't give up. Right. And it'll give you that energy and that motivation to just right. forge forward. Right. I think people misunderstand that. I don't think anything in life comes easy. Right. And so. Right. But there is that school of thought, like when you find your calling, it'll feel, it won't feel like work. It'll feel like play. And a lot of people take that to heart. Mm -hmm. And I used to say to audiences, how many of you, you know, it's going to feel like play every day. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I say, well, good luck with that. Because yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. I, mean, I love standing on a stage and speaking in front of 3000 people. I love it. Do I love standing in the security line at the airport and, you know, checking in at midnight in my hotel? No, right? But you do the stuff you don't want to do to get to do the stuff that you do want to do. Fair. And I think it's always trade-offs, right? And I think it's percentages. That's the way I personally think about it. Absolutely. Nothing's 100%, but as you maximize that percentage of satisfaction, this yep. will lead to happiness. I, I think one of the other things they say is, it's not like, it's not that you find your passion, it's you develop your passion. Have you found that to be true? I think it depends what it is. You know, sometimes it might be something that you don't really have to work that hard at, you know, that comes relatively easy to you. I mean, putting it in price, if you're going to be self-employed, you know, starting a business or something, then there's always going to be um, effort. But the reality is the more you do anything, the better you'll get. So yes, absolutely. You know, people want to just start out immediately. They say, I want to be a speaker. What they mean is they want to like immediately just go out and be a speaker. Well, go practice, right? right. Go get some little tiny gigs and talk in front of 10 people and start there. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, have you thought about, do you have any thoughts on the future of work? COVID has changed everything, of course. 
Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, uh, Sahil, to see what happens in the next year, two, three years, with and so many different um, areas. Uh, you know, apart from that, you know, I, I do have concerns about um, artificial intelligence and how many jobs are going to be replaced, and just kind of what is going to replace work. You know, for a lot of people, if things are really highly automated. Um, but, you know, that aside, I think more and more people are looking at small businesses, are looking at um, multiple streams of income, you know, and realizing you don't, you know, it's, a, it's hard to come up with an idea to, for that one big idea to make 75000 100000 whatever you want to make. Right. It's a lot easier to have three or four, you know, often complementary. They don't have to be complementary, but things that will then make that, make that income for you. Mm. You know, I, I sometimes ask this question about for people who have had long careers, if they could share some uh, humbling lessons of success. Some humbling lessons of success. Well, from success, I would say. Oh, from success. Well, you know, I think success is complicated mm -hmm. and we act like, oh, just go be successful. But success is complicated because success can also separate you from other people. Mm. And if relationships are important to you, then that can, you, there could be some ambivalence, right? And so you might think it's your imposter syndrome talking. You might think it's fear that's holding me, me back. But in reality, it might be that there's this awareness in the back of your mind that it's going to change things for you, whether it's your in an intimate relationship, whether it's with your friends, whether it's your family, whether you have to leave your community to relocate, whether your parents are getting older and now you have to go move or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. You know, you grew up working class or poor and suddenly you're making a lot of money and other folks aren't, you know, so there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, I mean, I, a humbling experience. Gosh, I, <laughs> that's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm humble whenever I, you know, I, I'm on a stage and something goes wrong, you know? Um, but I, what I've learned to do is to uh, laugh about it and often make it like a teachable moment for people. I was, uh, I was speaking to this audience of about three or 400 healthcare executives in Orlando and I started coughing and I had to excuse myself, you know, when you like can't stop coughing, step to the side of the stage, take a drink of water, come back. So I said to the audience, how many of you would be mortified right now if this happened to you? People raised their hand. I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I said, it's not that I don't care. Would I rather not cough? Absolutely. But the reality is nobody stormed out of the room. Nobody said, I am not listening to this coughing speaker one more second. You know, and we're just so hard on ourselves. So if something like that happens, the person would probably beat themselves up more than what the audience actually would. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like I hacked through the, the entire thing. I mean, that would be difficult to, to listen to. It was just this momentary step aside, take some water, stop coughing and went on. But yeah, I think we're much harder on ourselves. And I think that we need to learn to, to laugh at ourselves more. Mm -hmm. Valerie, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com. <laughs>